chapter 27, beginning in verse 11. We're in a series entitled, From the Cross to the Crown, looking at a few of the events that led up to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then His glorious resurrection. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at His betrayal, when Judas handed Jesus over to the chief priest. Last week, Nathan preached on the denial. Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, and then denied he ever knew Him. This morning, we look at the start of the final moments in Jesus' life. This was his trial where he was condemned to die. There have been famous trials in human history. Scott versus Sandford, which resulted in the disastrous Dred Scott decision. The Nuremberg trials, the Scopes monkey trial, Roe versus Wade. But no trial has ever been more unjust the only perfectly innocent man who ever lived was put through a rigged trial. False testimony was offered. Loud demands were made. And a corrupt judge gave him over to be crucified. This is the condemnation of Jesus. Let's read these verses. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 11. I'm in the New American Standard Bible. And it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor... And the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was because of envy they handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of that man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The condemnation of Jesus, it starts with an accurate charge. Jesus faced two trials. One was the religious trial before the high priest in the Sanhedrin. The other was a criminal trial before Pilate. The religious trial technically started when Judas betrayed him. Jesus was first taken to Annas. He was a wicked man, about 70 years old. He was retired, but to a certain extent, he was the de facto high priest. 
Then Jesus was taken to the house of Caiaphas, the official high priest. This was the man who was supposed to be the spiritual leader of the Jews. This was the man who once a year went into the most holy place, into the temple, to make atonement for the sins of the people, yet he was filled with raging hatred toward Jesus. Now remember, this is in Caiaphas' house, so more than likely... The entire Sanhedrin was not there. But look back in your Bible at Matthew chapter 26, verse 59. Matthew 26, verse 59. It says they tried to attain false witnesses. Mark chapter 14 says they got them, but their statements did not agree. So unable to get any traction, look at verse 63. They have waited for this moment for three years. They viscerally hated Jesus because he claimed to be deity. So Caiaphas said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. He was requiring Jesus by oath to give him a direct answer to his question. And Jesus gave him a direct answer, all right. Verse 64, he said to him, you have said it yourself. And then combining verses from Daniel and the Psalms, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of God? You have said it yourself, an accurate charge. So look at verse 65. It says, Then the high priest tore his robes, which, by the way, was in violation of Jewish law. He tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. Verse 66, he deserves death. And verse 67, they spat in his face and beat him with their fist and others slapped him. God incarnate, judged by men to be a blasphemer of himself. They wanted Jesus dead. But Roman law prohibited Jews from executing the death sentence. So he was sent to the Roman governor Pilate for the criminal trial. Now look at verse 11 in chapter 27. Pilate questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say, another accurate charge. So here's a question. The chief priest obviously wanted Pilate to rubber stamp their death sins. Why hold a trial in the first place? They had him in Gethsemane. They could have killed him right there. Matthew chapter 26 says they plotted to arrest him by stealth, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. But the people weren't there. It was dark. So who would be the wiser if they killed him? One note, that verse about planning to arrest him by stealth, lest there be an uproar of the people, the gospel accounts teach us that there is absolutely no room for anti-Semitism in Christianity. Large numbers of Jews were drawn to him. Palm Sunday would be another example. It was the Sanhedrin, the elitist, who wanted him dead. But they didn't kill him because they believed they must demonstrate to the people that Jesus is guilty of breaking Jewish law. Leviticus 24, 16 says the blasphemer should be put to death. They wanted him sentenced under the law 
to be guilty of being a blasphemer. In contrast, they will stand as the righteous defenders of the law. They will look great in the eyes of the people, and this pesky Jesus will be gone. They do not know that they're playing into the redemptive purpose of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. But Jesus was guilty as charged. King of the Jews, guilty. God himself, guilty. And therefore, guilty in the first degree of coming to give his life as a ransom for many. And that many includes you. So number one, an accurate charge. Number two, the crucial question. Jesus is now in the hands of Pilate. So look at verse 22, perhaps the most infamous question in human history. Pilate said, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That is the most important question any person will ever answer. It's a pressing question. Human life is ebbing away and your answer determines your eternal destiny. Therefore, it's a personal question. What will you do with Jesus? No one else can answer that. Your wife or husband cannot answer that for you. Your parents, your grandparents, it has to be you. And therefore, it is a pertinent question. Because since we all die, it is more pertinent than any pertinent, excuse me, than anything else we have on our plates today. And that brings up another question. Jesus died to give his life a ransom for many. He offers eternal life freely and graciously. So why is there a growing animosity toward biblical Christianity in our country? Why don't more people come to Jesus? This verse gives us two of the reasons. Number one, there is a fear that conforms humanity. We see it today. We see it in this passage. One of those fears is public opinion, or we could call it peer pressure. Verse 15 says it was a custom during the Passover to release a prisoner. Verse 16 introduces us to him. He was a known criminal named Barabbas. No one doubts his guilt. So look at verse 17. Pilate said, who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? He was sure they would pick Jesus, but they chose Barabbas. And the crowd thundered in verse 22, crucify him. Verse 23, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. And this was probably not a large crowd. This was very early in the morning. Yet the ones filled, oftentimes the ones filled with the most hate, have the loudest voices. So Pilate listened to public opinion, and he sent Jesus off to be crucified. Now what we learn here is the extreme danger of listening to the crowd. We listen to the crowd, and then we can be influenced by the crowd, and then eventually follow the crowd. Crowds, friend, they often know nothing. But notice something in verse 20. This was a crowd that was incited by the chief priest. The world today is incited against biblical Christianity by many people in many high places. Never 
listen to the crowd. And friends, never be intimidated by the crowd. Just look at this passage. An incited crowd will make an illogical choice. Verse 21, they wanted Barabbas. He was a known murderer. He was good for nothing. But they were so incited. They were so led on that they strongly believed they were making the moral choice. And there was no other choice. And there was no logical thinking whatsoever. An incited crowd will make an illogical choice. And they will scream with an irrational cry. Verse 22, they all said, crucify him. Verse 23, they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. And that's where we are today. People think Jesus is toxic because of public opinion. People think they know who Jesus is because of public opinion. And that keeps them from surrendering to the Lord Jesus. So people don't come to Jesus because of public opinion, but also plain old human pride. Look at verse 13. Then Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And verse 14, He did not answer with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Now two things are happening here. Number one, that's a prophecy of Isaiah 53, excuse me, a fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah 53, 7. It says, like a lamb who is led to slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah prophesied that that very thing would happen. But the second thing is that Pilate is amazed because he's used to people begging for their life. Luke 23 says he questioned him at length and Jesus didn't say a word. Pilate was full of pride. In John 19, he said, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And God had given Pilate many reasons to believe in Jesus. Verse 18 says Pilate knew they handed Jesus over because of jealousy. And then in verse 19, we see that Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus. And she sent him an urgent message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Pilate's wife was a woman named Claudia Procula, P-R-O-C-U-L-L-A. She was the daughter of the Emperor Augustus. Pilate was a calculating man. Yes, he married to get ahead. Yet Claudia and her mother was such a moral disgrace that Augustus himself wrote, would I were wifeless or had childless died? So why listen to her? The Romans were superstitious about dreams. So God works through this immoral woman to send her husband a disturbing message about the innocence of Jesus. But Pilate ignored the testimony of his conscience, the testimony from Jesus, the supernatural dream of his wife. He knows the Jews were jealous, but the crowning blow is found in John 19. It says there, the chief priest told Pilate, Jesus ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he became even more afraid. He was convicted of Jesus' innocence, yet he still handed him over. I wonder how many witnesses God has sent to this world. 
I'm wondering how many times his kind providence has been experienced by human beings. I'm wondering how many times conviction has been sent by the Holy Spirit. The human pride says, I will not bow, I will not change, I will not listen, I will not believe. But there's a third reason people don't believe. It's not only public opinion and pride, but it's politics. Pilate's career at this point in time was in trouble. When he, he just, he couldn't get it right. When he first came to Jerusalem, his soldiers carried standards with eagles of gold and silver into the temple area. And the Jews saw this as a sacrilege and they rioted. So Pilate ordered them all held in an amphitheater outside of town. And he threatened to kill every one of them unless they backed down. In mass, they refused. So foreseeing a bloodbath, Pilate backed off. Word got back to Rome that some obstinate Jews had beaten him. Strike one. So he decided to placate the Jews by building an aqueduct to Jerusalem, bringing water into the town. What a great act. <laughs> Except he decided to finance it with money from their temple treasury. So they rioted again, and Pilate killed many of them. And all Rome wanted was taxes and peace. No uprisings. Their soldiers had more important things to do than deal with these pesky Jews. Strike two. Then Pilate ordered new armor for his soldiers. The Jews considered images on the, uh, the uh, armor to be idolatrous, so they rioted again. He fouled off strike two. So Caesar Tiberius is incensed with him, and he sent him a message saying, one more rebellion, and you're done. So when the voices became loud, Pilate responded politically. He only considered his temporal situation he put his finger to the wind and he handed Jesus over now many today will choose what's politically expedient or socially acceptable instead of staying true to Jesus but I want to tell you a story that's well chronicled do you know that others gain courage when you are willing to stand and when you are willing to speak now granted we have to pick our spots but others gain courage when you stand tall. In the 4th century, there was a monk named Telemachus. He lived as a hermit seeking God. And one day he realized that was selfish and fruitless. So he decided to return to Rome to live the rest of his life for Jesus. When he returned, the Romans were celebrating a military victory. They had conquered someone. And prisoners of war were being paraded through the streets to the Colosseum. At the Colosseum, he found 50,000 people cheering wildly as they forced prisoners to fight two at a time, battling each other to the death. When one of the prisoners would be wounded, the crowd would chant, He has had it. He has had it. They were bloodthirsty. There was sand spread all over the field to soak up the blood of previous competitors. By the way, this was after the Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which eventually led to Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. It didn't quite take. Telemachus was so appalled that he vaulted down onto the field, ran out on that front area, and stood between the prisoners, forcing them to stop their battle. The crowd was enraged. They chanted for him to be killed. Some were throwing stones. So the commander of the games gave the signal to kill him, and a soldier thrust his sword through Telemachus's body. And the crowd fell silent. 
They realized they'd encouraged the killing of a holy man of God, and soon after his death, gladiatorial battles were banished from the Colosseum. Just like Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So courage is contagious. Never give in. And at the end of the age, you will rejoice if you do not give in to public opinion, pride, or political pressure. It's a fear that conforms humanity. But there are also fallacies that condemn humanity. What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Some ignore him. Look in verse 24. When Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. And then he said... See to that yourselves. In other words, this man is your responsibility. What you do with him is on you. I'm turning my back on the whole thing, which is impossible to do. Jesus cannot be ignored. At one point, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. He didn't want anything to do with him. Herod sent him back like a boomerang. You can never get away from Jesus. What then shall you and I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? What have you done with him? You can't ignore him. You may give no thought to him in this life, but you'll face him in judgment in the next life. You cannot ignore him. And the other thing is you cannot stay neutral. Pilate evidently never thought of a day of accountability. He thought that when he washed his hands, he wasn't taking sides. That's true that Pilate didn't drive nails into his hands. He didn't stick a spear into his side. He didn't spit into his face. He didn't even falsely accuse him. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood, but no human being is ever innocent of Jesus' blood. When you read about Pilate in the early church, it's fascinating. Some have gone so far as to try to exonerate him. Augustine saw him as a prophet. Tertullian wrote that he became a Christian and tried to convert the emperor, but Pilate was a cold-blooded killer. Josephus, the, uh, the Jewish historian, records that he was finally recalled by Rome after he killed a group of Samaritans. But the one thing that will always be said about him is this. He condemned Jesus to death. Public opinion, pride, politics, ignoring him, trying to stay neutral... None of it answers the question posed to each one of us, what then will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Public opinion says, be careful what you do. Pride says, don't do what you know to do. Possessions and positions say, don't risk me. Politics say, put your finger to the wind and go that way. Popularity will say, don't lose any friends over him. But the Holy Spirit says to each one of us, this is the Christ, the Son of God. And this morning, here, or whether you're watching online, if you've never surrendered your life to Him, right now is the time to do so. There's an accurate charge. There's a crucial question. I hope you see this. There is a wrong choice. Verse 26, He released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, He handed Him over to be crucified. Let's imagine that we're Barabbas. You're imprisoned. You're condemned to die. You know you're going to die. You just don't know when. And then one day you hear a crowd in the distance. 
They're getting louder. They're getting angrier. And yet the noise ends with this crescendo of happiness. And as it dies down, you hear footsteps, boots on the ground. And through iron bars, you can see Roman guards heading to you. Here it is. Your day's finally come. The guards rip open your door. They're in a bad mood because no one likes being assigned to the Jewish detail. They open the door and they say, Barabbas, get out of here. Not get out here, get out of here. They say, you must have a bunch of friends around here because this crowd showed up and for some reason they demanded that you be released. If it was up to us, we would kill you. But Pilate set you free. They're crucifying some guy named Jesus of Nazareth in your place. Barabbas is a picture of each one of us. We're guilty of crimes. We did commit all of sin. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus was crucified in our place so that we might be set free. It doesn't seem right, does it? The God-man Jesus killed for sins we did commit, but God decreed that it is right. This is mercy beyond anything you see on earth. If you're a believer, there is nothing on your record. It's been expunged. Because Jesus died in your place, you have no record of wrongs, no guilt, no shame. And therefore, Romans 8, 1 says, no condemnation. There will never be anything on your record. No sin is held against you. This is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, that means the penalty. Substitutionary Jesus died in our place, an atonement, the means of reconciling God and human beings. Now, if you die tonight without Jesus, you'll be charged with blasphemy. Blasphemy is ultimately putting yourself in the place of God. The first of the Ten Commandments says you shall have no other God before him. There isn't one of us that have kept that commandment. We've regarded our own will, ambitions, our own emotions, our decisions as taking first place over God's word and will. But you can be forgiven of all that by trusting in Jesus to save you. Not trusting in a good life you imagine that you've led. Trusting in Jesus like Barabbas, you can be set free. Barabbas is a picture of every Christian freed by Jesus' atoning death. And Jesus is the one who stood in our place. When he stood law, uh, trial under the law of God, he remained silent. Yes, that fulfilled prophecy, but there's another reason for that. It's a representation of Jesus standing in our place. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. Many imagine they'll be very chatty when they stand before Jesus. <laughs> the lost will not say a word. There is nothing a guilty man can say before a holy God. There is nothing a guilty man will say before a holy God. As terrifying as this is, imagine yourself for just a moment standing before God being guilty of blasphemy. You've made yourself your own king. 
You've lived as if the world was made for you, not for God. Now, you have an escape from that. Now, not then. The mercy of God is available today. So turn away from your sins if you never have and trust him as your Lord and Savior. Nathan or myself or Kirk would be glad to talk to you. People sitting next to you would be glad to talk to you. Believers, while we never want to betray, deny, or condemn Jesus by our words or actions, these verses are a cause to rejoice. Because Jesus suffered under the penalty of the law, we are set free. Sometimes, maybe even I should say often, when something bad happens to a person, they will say, is this God punishing me for my sin? Well, the book of Hebrews does teach that God disciplines believers. But I want to ask you a question. Why would God punish you for your sins when he's already punished Jesus for your sins? Thank God for his indescribable grace. I want to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to ask Nathan if you just come and put on some, some background music. I'm going to pray, and during this time that I'm praying, if you just want to come forward here and kneel and pray, I invite you to do that today. If you have a question about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time, then I want you to come, and I want you to pray about that, and then afterward, would you talk to one of us? We're going to do this for just a couple of minutes. So right now, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as I pray. If you desire to come, you go ahead and come. And then after a couple minutes, I'll close us. Father, we thank you for your indescribable grace. I, I can't, sometimes I just don't have words, Lord. I recognize that I am Barabbas through and through. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Guilty of blasphemy, guilty of all the commandments. And yet, in your wonderful grace, you set us free. I pray for each of us that in these moments and even the rest of this day that we would ponder the depth of what that means. Lord, we're so, in this flesh, we so often just look at the short term. We make, we make plans for many things. We make plans vocationally and we plan our vacations and we plan uh, everything regarding our future. And sometimes that's so short-sighted. Lord, we know it's good to plan, but so often we don't think about eternity. So would you put that in the forefront of our mind? You put it in our hearts. Would you put that in the forefront of our mind this morning? This is such a short life. And what we do here matters forever and ever and ever. And we know that in our finite minds, we can't conceive fully of what eternity is like, but we know it has no end. And so for believers, it will be an eternity on a new earth. You'll be on your throne in Jerusalem, yet you'll still be omnipresent. We can go in and out of those 12 gates. 
We'll have interaction with other believers. There'll be no sin to create any kind of conflict, any kind of fear. There won't be any animals we'll be afraid of, no weather we'll be afraid of. There won't even be the dark. We will rejoice in you and around you forever and ever and ever. And yet unbelievers have the exact opposite fate. So as we consider these truths, I pray, number one, believers, I pray we would rejoice in these truths. Number two, I pray they would cause us to open our mouths more often in evangelism to let other people know this good news because public opinion and pride and the political pressure of this world, so many people have heard of Jesus, they have no concept who he really is. You've used us to be your mouthpieces of truth. Thank you for that. I thank you for not only your amazing grace, your death, your burial, your resurrection, and your kindness to us. I thank you for the people in these chairs this morning. These, most of these people here love you. Many struggle with various things. It's been a hard week. We pray for the two ladies whose father has passed away this week, or excuse me, father and mother passed away this week. We pray for people who are suffering physically, emotionally, mentally right now. Help us to always remember that this world is not our home. Thank you for our time together this morning. I pray that you would bless us in great ways, not just in our temporal, immediate circumstances, but that you would bless us spiritually. Put a new fire in our hearts that we perhaps have never experienced, that we would be absorbed by you and completely focused on you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your great word, your Holy Spirit. We love you so much, Lord Jesus, and we acknowledge fully that we love you because you first loved us. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.